0: Hey, it's Guy here. So a lot of you ask how you can support the TED Radio Hour. And the best way to do that is to support your local public radio station. Here at NPR, we're launching our annual end-of-year fundraising campaign. And the clock is ticking to get your contributions in. So throughout the month, I hope you'll take a little bit of time to reflect on what this show has meant to you this year. And then if it has meant something, please go to donate.npr.org slash TED to support your local station. And thanks. So there are certain people who have this ability to motivate us, to take up a cause, to follow them, or want to create change. But how do some leaders like Nelson Mandela or Tarana Burke have the ability to inspire people? And when does that influence actually spark others to take action? Well, we explore all those ideas in this episode. It's called Inspire to Action, and it originally aired in May of 2018. This I'm Guy Raz. So, have you ever wondered what it would take to start a movement?
2: A short while ago, astonishing news from East Germany, where the East German authorities have said, in essence, that the Berlin Wall doesn't mean anything anymore. A movement that actually changes a culture
3: or a society. There's Mr. Mandela, Mr. Nelson Mandela, a free man, taking his first steps into a new South Africa.
0: Something that inspires people to take to the streets.
3: The Arab Spring spreads to Egypt. Celebrations as it was announced President Hosni Mubarak's 30-year rule had come to an end.
4: Movement to me is a revolution. And I teach world history, so I teach revolutions. It's a momentous change in ideas, in culture, in attitudes.
0: This is Diane Wolk Rogers, and as she mentioned, she teaches world history to high school students. And Diane says most movements have a few things in common that make them successful.
4: You need to have a core group of leaders who can unite a population, who can organize the protests and the marches, who are eagerly engaged and have the resources to push this movement forward.
0: Not too long ago, Diane unexpectedly went from teaching her students about the history of movements to watching one unfold, a movement that happened to be led by those very same students. Here's Diane Wolk-Rogers on the TED
4: stage. I teach history at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. On February 14th, 2018, my school experienced one of the worst mass school shootings in American history. I don't remember everything, but I do remember I went into crisis mode. I lined up the kids, I held up a sign so they could follow me through the hall, just like a fire drill. I heard shots from one direction. We made it outside. We made it to safety. How can we stop the senseless violence? This was the most difficult question I've been asked. And if you're not sure where to start, look to my students as role models. They are armed with incredible communication skills and a sense of citizenship that I find so inspiring. There is a widespread popular anger at an injustice. That's why I say it's a revolution. You know, it's caused by exploitation. But this time, it's of our youth. It's of our public school kids.
0: Today on the show, Inspire to Action. Ideas about what it takes to inspire people to take up a cause or follow a leader and produce real change. And why some movements succeed and others don't. And Diane wolk Rogers says her students from Parkland... Remind her of leaders who inspired some of the greatest movements
4: for social change. Not only are these kids really bright and have terrific communication skills, but when I talked about emotional intelligence, they know how to yell without yelling. Hmm. If you were there in Washington and you saw Emma and how she took that time to be silent, that to me was as powerful as Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. Because when I went there, at first... I'm thinking, they're not getting it, they're not getting it. And then when Emma got up there and she said nothing and she forced people to start to feel and to listen to their own thoughts, that's yelling without yelling. And I was looking around at the crowd, I go, yeah, people are thinking now, people want change now. These are public school kids engaged in the issue of gun regulation and their endeavor has moved our hearts. And they shouldn't have to do this on their own. They're asking you, they're asking all of us to get involved. This isn't a spectator sport. So what's the right answer? I don't know. Listen, I'm no gun control expert. I teach the humanities. To be human is to learn, and to be part of a civilization is to share your knowledge. This kind of honest, brave, and sincere engagement is what I ask of my students, what I expect of myself as a teacher, and what I demand of you now.
0: When you, when you look at the political landscape in the United States, um, especially when it comes to guns in America, do you think that, that the situation can actually change? I mean, do, do you think that this time it's different?
4: Absolutely, it's different. Change over time has occurred and that's one of the big things we have to teach in AP World History. Cultural attitudes have changed over time. At one of the um, wakes for one of my students, I was talking to the brother and um, he sat there and he completely understood and said, you know, 50 years ago, everybody in America smoked. Nobody would have thought that there'd be a day where you couldn't smoke in a restaurant or on an airplane or even in a park. But, you know, look what happened. And I think what's really interesting about this group is, you know, they're not willing to wait. The adults didn't enact those changes. And now they're saying, we're going to change the situation now. And they're not sitting around. They're not waiting for others. They've jumped on it.
0: Diane Wolk Rogers is a history teacher at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. You can see her entire talk at TED.com. On the show today, Inspire to Action. Ideas about rallying people to a cause bigger than themselves and building that into a movement. A movement is when people move, when they choose to go from here to there. This is Simon Sinek. He's a behavioral researcher and author of the book, Start
2: With Why. And here to there can be defined in any way, whether it's social change or political change or the manner in which we conduct business but that the people choose to change the way we do things, from this to that. So yeah, movements can come from anywhere, um, but they have to be voluntary. So why do some of them work and and others don't? Well, I am interested into why people do what they do and why is it that certain times and certain people are able to move others. You know, there was plenty of civil rights violations prior to Martin Luther King and there was no shortage of knowledge and personalities who knew what needed to be done. Hmm. And there were even great orators prior to Martin Luther King. So how come it took until the 1960s for the movement really to
3: grip?
0: I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the
1: true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal.
2: And I think a large part of it is, remember, as social animals, communication is important to us. And how things are expressed really matters. And we can scare people into doing things. And though they may act, it's not sticky. Because we don't know what we stand for. We only know what we stand against. And so I found remarkable the way Martin Luther King spoke to us. He spoke in terms of what the future looks like in a positive way, in terms so clear that we could imagine it with him.
0: My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their
2: character. I have a dream today. He didn't just simply show up and rail against, you know? He spoke for a different world, to how to go from here to there. And he so beautifully described what there is.
1: I have a dream.
2: And I think the great leaders, regardless of where they come from and whether it's social change or business change, they are really expert at describing of where we're going, what here to there looks like. Here's Simon Sinek on the TED stage. In the summer of 1963, 250,000 people showed up on the mall in Washington to hear Dr. King speak. They sent out no invitations, and there was no website to check the date. How do you do that? Well, Dr. King wasn't the only man in America who suffered in a pre-civil rights America. In fact, some of his ideas were bad, but he had a gift. He didn't go around telling people what needed to change in America. he went around and told people what he believed. I believe, I believe, I believe, he told people. And people who believed what he believed took his cause, and they made it their own, and they told people. And some of those people created structures to get the word out to even more people. And lo and behold, 250,000 people showed up on the right day, on the right time, to hear him speak. How many of them showed up for him? Zero. They showed up for themselves. It's what they believed about America that got them to travel on a bus for eight hours to stand in the sun in Washington in the middle of August. It's what they believed. And it wasn't about black versus white. 25% of the audience was white. Dr. King believed that there are two types of laws in this world. Those that are made by a higher authority and those that are made by man. And not until all the laws that are made by man are consistent with the laws that are made by the higher authority will we live in a just world it just so happens that the civil rights movement was the perfect thing to help him bring his cause to life we followed not him not for him but for ourselves and by the way he gave the i have a dream speech not the i have a plan speech what is it about like human nature that motivates us to action is it do we need to be inspired we are tribal animals and one of the things that ensures the success of the tribe and, and indeed the species is our sense of belonging. And belonging comes from a common sense of values and beliefs. And sometimes those things are understood, but they start to have scale, the ability to scale when when they're directed and when someone does actually lead us and, and can articulate where we're going.
0: And so, so when we think about great movements like the civil rights movement or the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, right? Or even a movement like the, the, the Russian Revolution, right? I mean, there were leaders who inspired people to take action. How, like, what does a leader have? Like, why do some people have that ability to inspire? What is it that they have?
2: Well, first of all, they have deep undying belief in something bigger than themselves. And the best leaders are actually the best followers. Hmm. Because they don't see themselves as the thing to be followed. They actually see themselves as following a cause bigger than themselves. They actually see themselves in service to something else. Um, It's the rest of us who choose to follow them. In
0: just a moment, why the world could use more of those kinds of leaders and what it takes to become one. On the show today, Inspire to Action. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Target Red Card. Save 5% and get more every day. More yum for your weekly grocery list. More fun with the perfect stocking stuffers. More wow for decorating the tree. From kids' wish lists to the hottest tech gifts, Red Card gets you more. Learn more in-store or online. Restrictions apply. See target.com redcard for details. Thanks also to Google Fox a phone plan by Google. Switch to Google Fi and get data abroad for no extra charges so you never have to worry about calling up your provider to let them know you'll be traveling. Google Fi is made with features that people actually want, like three networks included in one, which lets you tap into multiple networks for the best signal nearby. Learn more at fi.google.com.
2: This week on Bullseye, Lin-Manuel Miranda on his Dark Materials, hip hop, and life after Hamilton. I know it's the
0: first line of my obituary, so if that line is handled, then what else can I do with my time here?
2: It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and
0: NPR. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, inspire to action. And just before the break, we were hearing from author and behavioral researcher Simon Sinek. And Simon was explaining why certain movements, like the civil rights movement, inspire people to change the world, and why others never seem to catch fire.
2: The ones that fizzle out, I think, very often were driven by marketing and money. In other words, it's a little bit like advertising, you know. Companies know that if you spend money on advertising, you'll see your sales go up. And mm-hmm. if you stop spending money on advertising, you'll see the sales go down. Yeah, And I think the movements that survive are the ones that are driven by the people. And people who hear uh, a vision of the future that they believe in, um, they find some sense of belonging, they take that cause and make it their own. And they themselves become leaders in their own communities. They themselves will choose to spread a message to, to other people. Hmm.
0: You know there are challenges that we we face that are so huge, like like climate change, right? I mean, climate change is something you could argue is is on the order of the greatest challenges we've ever had to face, and and yet it doesn't seem like like the masses around the world have been inspired to take action. And so why? I mean, why, why do you think that is?
2: Well, first of all, when there is change or things are different or difficult, it's easy to stoke fear. And the best way to to beat pessimism is with optimism. And I think one of the challenges that we face with all of these, what should be movements, but don't seem to be movements, is A, we don't know who the leaders of the movement are. Who is articulating the message? Hmm. We don't have anybody who's preaching a vision of the future that is brighter and different uh, than the one that we live in now, or they do it in terms that are really hard to understand. They're so big and so amorphous that they lose tangibility, huh. you know? Like, make the planet better. Like, I, how do you even conceive of that? S- protect the environment. And at, fundamentally, what makes a movement a movement is you put it into terms that are individual. I mean, what it, Stalin allegedly said, the death of one man is a tragedy and the death of a million is a statistic. And the problem is the quote-unquote leaders of our modern movements seem to speak in statistics. Mm. And it doesn't resonate. I mean, go back to Martin Luther King you know, I have a dream that one day little black children will hold hands on the playground with little white children. Little black boys and
3: black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today.
2: He didn't say that we will all get along and all the races will, you know, feel like they're together. He talked, you can literally imagine a little black child holding hands with a little white child on a playground. We can imagine it. Totally. And so... What we do is we use these individual stories, whether they're true or whether they're hypothetical, as metaphors for the big idea. Because we can relate to the small story, because we can relate ourselves to the small story. Listen to politicians now with their comprehensive 12-point plans. They're not inspiring anybody. Because there are leaders and there are those who lead. Leaders hold a position of power or authority, but those who lead, inspire us. Whether they're individuals or organizations, we follow those who lead, not because we have to, but because we want to. We follow those who lead, not for them, but for ourselves. Do you think
0: that um, we are at a place, this sort of crossroads, in human history, where because of the dissemination of information, the access to information, that um, paradoxically, even though we can connect in so many ways more easily than ever before, it's harder for people to rally around one thing, for massive numbers of people to rally around one thing.
2: What is more inspiring? You know, connecting with somebody on a An online forum about common beliefs, or showing up to a rally and holding hands with a stranger, Hmm. hugging someone and crying in the face of injustice. It's those human experiences to look someone in the eye, to cry with someone, to hold their hands, to show up and feel a part of something when you show up and there are throngs of people and you don't know them, and in any other circumstance you would never be friends with them, but for the fact that they showed up, we become brothers and sisters in that moment. Mm. And those experiences inspire us to do it again. And we will get on another train, or a bus, or a car, and we will drive another seven and eight hours simply to stand in the sun for hours to say, I believe, I believe, I believe.
5: We're going to walk together. We're going to stand together. We're it's going
2: these to incredibly We're going to human together. experiences that make together. movements We're going to move. Roll and after a while, we freedom! Freedom! Freedom
0: back. Author Simon Sinek, his talk about how great leaders inspire action is the third most viewed TED Talk of all time. You can see that and his other talk at TED dot com. On the show today, Inspire to Action ideas about what inspires people to follow leaders and then become leaders themselves. Like in the case of Iceland and a woman named Vigdis Finnbogadottir.
3: She was an incredibly wise, intelligent, but yet humble woman. I go out in the country and meet everybody and we have a wonderful time together. She cared so much about the people that she would uh, sleep in people's homes instead of going to hotels because they want to know that the president knows how they live. She was a single mom and um, she had a young daughter as well. Usually there are men doing these jobs and usually for a presidency there's a couple. She would frequently be asked as a single woman how she was going to be able to be president without a a wife who would organize parties and, and be by her side. Apparently my people saw something in me that they thought could be Good as a president.
0: In 1980, Iceland made history by electing the country's first female president.
1: Iceland's new president is Vigdis Finnbogadottir, the first woman to hold that post in Iceland's history.
0: The world's only democratically elected female head of state. She and back then, Halla Tomasdóttir was just a little girl.
3: I remember um, on the day, on the morning when the votes were in, I will never forget this um, picture uh, when she steps out on the balcony of her own home with her daughter by her side in a home knitted dress that some woman had knitted for her and sent her as she had just won. And this picture of the way she greeted people in such a warm, uh, homely manner uh, with her daughter next to her was forever just a picture in my mind, because it was so different from every other exhibition I had seen of power and leadership.
0: And and so this was a time where you had emerging female um, leaders around the world. You had Indira Gandhi and Golda Meir and Margaret Thatcher, and President Vigdis was was elected in Iceland.
3: Yes, and she was... um, uh, the first one to be democratically elected uh, in a direct election to all the people. But she was an amazing president. And so I grew up during her 16 years in office. And I don't think I'm alone when I say she inspired us. Uh, She inspired us by how she did leadership. She cared about the environment. She cared about women and, and women's impact on society. And she cared about culture and languages and our ability to talk to each other. And and she had such a clear vision in these areas. And she likes to tell the story of how her presidency did not just influence um, young girls, but also boys. Because after she had been in office for a couple of terms, a young boy came to see her once and said, "Madam Victis, can boys also grow up to be presidents?
0: And you can imagine that that little boy's shift in perspective was probably happening to hundreds, even thousands of kids throughout Iceland, including a then 11-year-old Hala Thomasdottir.
3: My friends tell me that I said in school uh, around that time that I was going to run for president one day. I, I don't remember saying that, but I do remember very well this feeling that this was historic, that this was different, and that this was better for all of us. There was something about the way she carried herself and how she appealed to all of us that made me feel incredibly proud.
0: Hala grew up to be a pretty important public figure in Iceland. She's a businesswoman, and entrepreneur. She helped start Reykjavik University. And then she co-founded a female-run investment firm. And in 2016, a Facebook petition got started encouraging Hala to run for president.
3: And to be honest, my first reaction was, who am I to run for president? It's a huge responsibility. It's a big um, leadership job. I was uh, full of self-doubt and what women often suffer from, imposter syndrome. You know, I didn't think I was good enough. And I think it's a normal question to ask yourself, who am I to serve? But I think a better question to think more about is, who are we not to? If we really care and we think the world is... Not right, And um, global issues need to be solved. If we really believe this, then I think those of us who do need to ask ourselves, what am I doing? Because we can't point out the window and ask other people to solve it. We all need to kind of look in the mirror and release the leader that sits inside of us.
0: Hala thomas picks up the rest of the story from the TED stage.
3: It was the journey of my life. It started with... Potentially as many as 20 candidates. It boiled down to nine candidates qualifying, and ultimately the race came down to four of us. Three men and me. Oh, wow. But that's not all the drama yet. <laughs> so, on May 9th, 45 days before election day, it was not looking too good for me. <laughs> the polls had me at 1%. Wow. I mean,
0: that was... That... that was
3: a humbling day, Guy. <laughs> uh, I, I, I
0: bet. I bet. I mean, you... Did you start to have second thoughts?
3: Um, I didn't, but everyone around me more and less did. Hmm. But I think it was the best day of the campaign for me. And the reason is very simple, because when you are that vulnerable... When you're at 1% in the polls, you have nothing to lose. Yeah. And so on that day, I stopped listening to all the people who told me I should do this or that to be presidential. And I started listening to my own inner voice and really found the fire in the belly that made me make that decision. And I ran the campaign in line with who I am and what my principles and values are. So it would be an understatement to say that I had to work extremely hard to get my seat at the table and access to television, because the network decided that they would only include those with 2.5% or more in the polls in the first TV debate. I found out on the afternoon of the first TV debate that I would participate, along with the three men, and I found out on live TV that I came in at exactly 2.5% on the day of the first TV <laughs> debate. <laughs> so, the foremost challenges I had to face and overcome on this journey had to do with media, muscle and money. It proved harder for me to both get access and airtime in media... As a matter of fact, the leading candidate appeared in broadcast media 87 times in the months leading up to the elections, whereas I appeared 31 times. And I am not saying media is doing this consciously. I think largely this has to do with unconscious bias. So I did face this. But I will say this to compliment the Icelandic media. I got few, if any, comments about my hair and pantsuit. (laughs) So kudos to them. We ran a positive campaign. We probably changed the tone of the election for others by doing that. But even with one-third the media, one-third the financial resources, and only an entrepreneurial team, we managed to surprise everyone on election night when the first numbers came in. I surprised myself. (laughs) So the first numbers, I came in neck to neck to the leading candidate, well, too early because I didn't quite pull that, but I came in second, and we went a long way from the one percent with nearly a third of the vote.
0: It really is amazing. Um, you know, you talked about how how President Vigdis inspired you and then mm. and then, of course, you went on to run for president mm. and and who knows how many children you, you know, you may have inspired. But, you know, as we know, these changes don't happen overnight. You know, we're we're, we're not always realizing the impact these things have until 20 or 30 or, or 40 years later.
3: No, we're not. And I, I've thought a lot about how much role models matter, because even in my country with her as president for um, 16 years, we then afterwards had a male president for 20 years. And so after I ran for president myself, I did a volunteer teaching stint at my daughter's school. And I asked all of these 13-year-old boys and girls to draw some pictures for me. I told them I was coming in to talk about career choices. And I asked them to please draw a picture of a president, of an entrepreneur, and of a teacher. All three things, something I had achieved to be or had worked at myself. And so they all draw pictures, and with you know, all the kids, I went to many, many classes, and all of the kids, with two exceptions, drew a male president, a male entrepreneur, and a female teacher. Hmm. So this just tells us that even in the country that we generally consider to be leading the world when it comes to closing the gender gap, and where we had this amazing female president for 16 years, all of us think of a man <laughs> when we uh, think of a, a leader. Yeah,
0: but I'm, I mean, I'm sure many girls and certainly in Iceland were inspired by your campaign. And, and there's a story that you even tell in your TED Talk about this group of preschool girls who stopped to kiss a poster of you. Like you obviously made an impact on those girls.
3: Absolutely. That, when, I, when someone sent me that photo and I still don't know who the kids are or who even sent it. But I was wearing the national soccer team jersey because we were playing the Euro Cup at the time. And these three little girls and a boy. They're walking out there and they just see a need to kiss my picture. And that picture alone was enough of a win for me. I really thought this makes such a difference. And there were other wins like that. And I've since had countless stories. Grandmothers have approached me in the airport and told me about how their daughters say they're going to be presidents or say that they're going to run for office because they saw me. And I got incredible messages. And not just in Iceland, but I've actually received messages from women all over the world. And so I think you can have impact in so many ways. And I think you can win even if you don't become number one by just being there, not acting like a man, but being there as a woman.
0: Halla Thomas' daughter, as of right now, she has not decided whether she's going to run again, but she is mentoring a number of women in and out of Iceland who are interested in running for office. You can see her entire talk at TED.com. On the show today, Inspire to Action ideas about building movements for change. And in just a moment, we're going to hear from one researcher who argues why leaders with charisma are almost always more effective. They challenge the status quo.
5: That's the key ingredient. They also engage in unconventional, courageous behavior, something that other people don't dare to do. Uh, They express strong emotions. And charisma essentially is in the eye of the beholder. So whether someone is charismatic or not does not depend on some sort of objective criterion. It depends on what you see in them.
0: I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor TIAA, providing retirement options for individuals who work at nonprofits. President and CEO Roger Ferguson is proud to serve this community by helping to guide them to and through retirement. Our vision is to
1: help the millions of Americans who are helping others uh, to do better in their own financial lives. And so that means providing products and services, advice, uh, education. We say that we manage money for folks who have more important things to do.
2: To find out if you're eligible or to learn more, go to TIAA.org slash neverrunout. Guarantees are subject to the claims-paying ability of TIAA. Annuities are issued by Teachers Insurance and Annuity Association of America, New York, New York.
0: Thanksgiving can be full of turkey disasters.
2: It was just pasty and white, and it had this gross cloth over the top of it.
0: We'll talk about how to avoid that and keep Thanksgiving simple and edible. Plus, a chat with celebrity chef Samin Nosrat, next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about the leaders and the movements that inspire us to take action. And for Jochen Menges, the key is charisma. That's right. Jochen's been studying charismatic leaders for more than a decade, ever since 2008, when he went to a speech Barack Obama gave in Berlin.
5: It was a very warm July day. And I still vividly remember that moment when he walked up to that stage, and it took a while, and he was waving, and people were cheering and waking up.
1: Well, thank you,
5: Mayor
0: Mulberry. Said
5: thank you multiple times, trying to and make people stop applauding.
0: People of Berlin and Germany, thank you for this extraordinarily warm welcome.
5: Then all of a sudden became very quiet.
0: For thousands of years,
5: the people of this land have journeyed from tribe to principality to nation state. You know, he started to talk, Come and 200,000 people who had gathered that afternoon in that place was listening. There was so little movement. And I thought, you know, for someone who is charismatic, that person should cheer people up, should make people, you know, applaud, raise their hand, jump up and down, do all of this energy stuff. And it only happens when
4: the leader permits
5: that to happen, right? Occasionally, Barack Obama made a pause for people to cheer and applaud. And that's when we see the energy, then it's when we see the jumping. And that afternoon, it became evident in the person standing next to me, who after the speech, I questioned a bit, you know, what was the stuff that she liked the most and so on. And she was, she was unable to recall anything. She just said, you know, it was, it was amazing, it was awesome and so on. She didn't take away any detail. But what she did take away is that she wanted to go and vote and tell others about it. And um, it led me to discover something that I now call the awestruck effect. Jochen Menges picks up this idea from the TED stage. It is true that charismatic leaders instill positive emotions in us. They make us feel great. We're full of admiration and yet a little bit too shy to express it. In one word, if you like, we are awestruck. Now, you may wonder, okay, why is the awestruck effect important? Well, it turns out that psychologists have shown for many years that when people suppress the expression of their emotion, as they do when they're awe-struck, the intensity of the emotion increases inside of them, but they also suffer from a cognitive decrement. And that means that they're less able to understand, memorize, and scrutinize messages. So whether they understood this stuff doesn't matter. Once they felt great about it, once they felt confident they had something taken away, they follow.
0: And that means we follow our charismatic leaders in part because of the awe-struck effect. So what is the connection between charisma and inspiring people to take action?
5: I think the charismatics are the ones who are extremely good at inspiring action. Perhaps extremely good just at inspiring, full stop. Mm. Whether they get people to engage in action is a second
0: question. Yeah, I'm thinking of, of someone like you know, like Winston Churchill, for example, who is obviously a master at this.
5: Yeah. I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, Tears and sweat. The charismatics use tactics in their speeches. The first thing is that they start out mirroring the type of emotions that are already prevalent in the audience. have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. If I'm angry and the person steps on the stage and says, you know, I'm angry and so on, then I think, oh, that person feels like I do. So that person may speak to me. To wage war against a monstrous tyranny. But then they all of a sudden begin to question that emotion. They kind of ask, is it the right way to feel? And it creates confusion in the audience. And of course, confusion is the best companion for someone who wants to exert influence. offer an alternative interpretation. And so in the last step, typically, what these charismatic leaders do is they offer a new interpretation. They also call us to action and say, here's the path forward. this time, I feel entitled to claim the aidable. This is what I want you to do. Come then. Let's do it together. Let us go forward together with our united strength. Now, when I present this stuff, then usually, you know, at some point, a hand goes up and someone asks, Weren't there leaders that sort of stirred anger, hate and aggression? And weren't these sometimes charismatic leaders too? Yeah, I think not every charismatic leader has an all positive emotion as Obama had. But it turns out that all charismatic leaders try to instill their followers with positive emotions. But some still stir anger, hate, fear, all of that stuff. But they do so to target it to an outgroup. Some other people that are to blame for you know, our bad feelings here. And so they push the emotion away from them, thus relieving their own folks, their own in-group, their own followers from these negative emotions, creating a positive emotion instead. It's us, the great, versus them, the despicable. And inevitably, the next hand goes up and someone asks, so can this actually explain why sometimes people follow charismatic leaders, even if they lead them over the edge of the cliff? I say, sure, I mean, you know, if you're awestruck, you don't even notice that you're wandering towards the edge of the cliff, right? The awestruck effect can make us vulnerable to buy into the wrong vision, to be dazzled by seemingly simple yet deeply flawed solutions, and to ignore the moral deficiencies of charismatic leaders
0: who appeal to our heart. I mean, Jochen, there's a clear difference between dark charisma and... An optimistic charisma. I mean, there's a difference between Mussolini appealing to people's fears versus a leader who says like, you know, Franklin Roosevelt, who says better days are ahead of us. We're going to seize the moment. We all have the opportunity to be better people. I mean, that's a very different kind of charisma.
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if it's appealing to positive emotion, it is the more hopeful type of leadership. However, you know, if you look at these dark leaders that have brought about bad uh, things, they may start out with the negative, but they do that to then imbue in their inner circle, in their followers, a sense of a brighter future. So as a matter of caution, it might be wise to (laughs) just double check. Is it making sense?
0: Is it logically and rationally something that I can buy into. You know, when we think about great leaders of the last 100 or so years, you know, they all seem to have been charismatic people like Mandela or Churchill or Kennedy. Yeah. But then, you know, sometimes you think about uh, leaders who had v- very little charisma, but were actually quite effective, like, right. like Dwight Eisenhower. So I wonder whether leaders who have this positive charisma are better than leaders who have, you know, little or none. I think they're more powerful, they're more influential. They're
5: more likely to inspire action. Whether they are necessarily one who sees through the action, I sometimes wonder too. Charisma is great to bringing about a movement, to getting us all inspired to walk out and do something. But it's not sufficient to just establish yourself as a dreamer and someone who makes others feel good. It's also important to then deliver upon your results, So my take on it is, yeah, you can be successful in other ways. But I think having someone at the top of a nation, at the top of a business, at the top of a team who can also make us feel great while we're
0: doing something great is valuable in its own right. Jochen Menges is a researcher at the University of Cambridge. You can see his entire talk at ted.npr.org on the show today, Inspire to Action. Ideas on what it takes to start a movement, and perhaps more importantly, what it takes to keep that movement going.
1: Mass movements always take people by surprise.
0: This is writer and activist Naomi Klein.
1: You know, and if you talk to to organizers, they'll admit there's a certain magic to it of just like, why this time and not last time, you know? So I'm interested in that question, why this time and not that time, but, but also because I've been around for a little while and I've, I've seen some of these magical moments um, and I've seen them kind of disappear as quickly as they arose, I've become increasingly interested in what keeps people in motion. What's the glue?
0: Here's Naomi Klein on the TED stage.
1: And I'd say this is a pressing question these days because things are pretty shocking out there. And now there's no shortage of people who are sounding the alarm. But as a society, I don't think we can honestly say that we're responding with anything like the urgency that these overlapping crises demand from us. And yet we know from history that it is possible for crisis to catalyze a kind of evolutionary leap. And one of the most striking examples of this progressive power of crisis is the great crash of 1929. And this was taken by many as a message that the system itself was broken. And many people listened and they leapt into action. Now, these reforms were far from perfect. In the US, African-American workers, immigrants and women were largely excluded. But the Depression period, along with the transformation of allied nations and economies during the World War II effort, show us that it is possible for complex societies to rapidly transform themselves in the face of a collective threat. Now, if that's really what it took, then why isn't it working anymore? Why do today's nonstop shocks, why don't they spur us into action? So
0: this is the question. It's a question I asked Simon Sinek earlier in the show because it seems like people are really upset about a lot of these global crises, but it's they're not nothing seems to be changing. So what what's the missing element now?
1: Well, I think that the real missing ingredient or one of them has to do with, you know what I would call the utopian imagination of of not just a horror and rejection at something that we're seeing now but an actual articulated vision of the world we want instead. And I think that previous generations of activists, of organizers, you know, for better and worse, had that utopian vision of, of the world they wanted instead. They didn't identify as, you know, I am an environmental activist. I am a women's rights activist. I am a civil rights activist. It was more like, I'm a revolutionary. Hmm. I am not just resisting what I don't want. I know the world I want instead. And I think that it's in that interplay between a vision of the world we want instead and a horror in the face of what our current system is producing that both catalyzes people into movement and keeps them in the movement. Because the posture of rejection, of of enoughness, of no, is a powerful catalyst to bring people in the streets. But it's, it's an exhausting posture to maintain. And I think part of the burnout comes from the fact that what sustains people in struggle is that hope of what, what there could be instead. Rejection alone, I think, turns toxic and, and it's just exhausting. It's fight or flight. You can't stay in fight or flight forever. We are living at a time of extraordinary political engagements. Politics is a mass obsession. And yet this still doesn't add up to the kind of holistic and universalist vision of a different world that our predecessors had. So why is that? Well, very often, we think about political change in defined compartments these days. Environment in one box, inequality in another, racial and gender justice in a couple of other boxes, education over here, health over there. And within each compartment, there are thousands upon thousands of different groups and NGOs, each competing with one another for credit, name recognition, and of course, resources. So for instance, the people fighting poverty and inequality rarely talk about climate change, even though we see time and again that it's the poorest of people who are the most vulnerable to extreme weather. The climate change people rarely talk about war, and occupation, even though we know that the thirst for fossil fuels has been a major driver of conflict. The environmental movement has gotten better at pointing out that the nations that are getting hit hardest by climate change are populated overwhelmingly by black and brown people. But when black lives are treated as disposable in prisons, in schools, and on the streets, these connections are too rarely made.
0: When it comes to, to building a, a sustainable movement, is it about sort of breaking down these compartments that you describe and then trying to connect all these different groups and issues?
1: I think it is. And I think that um, over the past 30 years, there has been this process of extreme professionalization of activism where we carve the world into these single issue silos. And then people get funding based on which silo they're in. And it makes movements more inclined to set out very compartmentalized achievable wins that they can then go back to their funders saying, look, we won, right? But if you're talking about deep systemic change, whether it's you know in the face of systemic racism or whether it's in the face of climate change or whether it's in the face of economic inequality, you're not gonna get that easy win. Hmm. You know, it's gonna take decades.
0: Um, when you think about all of these enormous challenges, these generational challenges, these civilizational challenges that uh, the human race faces, are you optimistic? I mean, do you think that we will actually rise to these challenges and, and build the movements required to
1: overcome them? I have good days and bad days on that question. Huh. I think about the stakes of, you know, if if we don't change, then what happens? Then what does the future look like for my five-year-old son? Um, it's so unacceptable. It is so dangerous. And maybe it's time for the people who have stopped believing change is possible to step aside and just make some room. You know, one of the things you realize is, there is a natural regeneration in in social movements when when young people come in who have not um, experienced as many disappointments and setbacks, and they're raring to go and refuse to accept no for an answer and impossible for an answer. I see that uh, in the way. The Parkland teens responded to challenges that their movement only represented a narrow experience of of gun violence and didn't get defensive and, and listened and are creating, helping to create a more diverse movement. I'm seeing a generation come up, not just with more energy and optimism, but with a seemingly a greater capacity to break down silos, evolve, listen. You know, that gives me hope that they're they're dreaming again. They're not afraid of big ideas and I, I I take tremendous hope from that.
0: Activist and journalist Naomi Klein. You can find her full talk at ted.com. Hey, thanks for listening to our show, Inspire to Action, this week. If you want to find out more about who is on it, go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff here at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkinpur, Janae West, Neva Grant, Rund Abdel Fattah, Casey Herman, and Rachel Faulkner, with help from Daniel Shukin and Deba Motasham. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.